0: Well, we turn in our Bibles to Romans 7, and I just have to say, at the outset. If you're visiting Saving Grace Bible Church, welcome to Saving Grace Bible Church, where we pick the easy passages to work through. Uh, no, these are. I mean, who in their right mind will preach from Romans 7? I mean, there's uh, some difficulties in this text that are overwhelming. And again, if you're visiting and. You actually stay at the church as a result of sitting through this series. There is a bigger crown of glory for you in heaven. I am certain of that. Just thinking about this section as we move into from verses 7 through the end of the chapter, verse 25, and we look at the nuances, there are so many little details that are brought out here that are important for us to understand. And. Some significant theological potholes that we could fall into if we're not careful. And just wrestling with all those details, I told the men on Saturday in our men's meeting, we're just kind of wrestling with the nature of man as an implication out of this study. So there were at least 45 different points that I needed to make in verses 14 through 25. And that is main ideas and subordinate ideas. There's just no way you're getting through that in one sermon. I mean, unless we sit here all day and I preach like the Apostle Paul all day long and then Eutychus falls out the window, I just don't have the gift of raising anyone from the dead, so I won't do that to you. But the idea is that there's just so much riches here. and I, I could tell you, if it's difficult for you to sit there receiving all of this information, imagine how hard it is for me to give you the information. And it is so much to think through. And so uh, I would ask for your patience, realizing that we are going to build on this case day, you know, week in and week out for the next few weeks together as we work through Romans 7, because the lessons here are so important for us to understand the importance of the law But it leads us into a question of what is the Christian's relationship to the law? Like in the middle of Romans 6, 7, and 8 here comes chapter 7 and Paul talking about the law. And he's talking about the work of the gospel in the believer that we've been set free. We're living in grace now. And then bookends it with living in the spirit. And right in the middle of that is a discussion on the law. I mean, frankly, if you just got rid of seven for us and just gave us six and eight, ah, my heart would rejoice. Both as a preacher, how easy it would be to communicate it. But even the implications of chapter seven would just be a lot easier on my own heart and mind. So I understand the difficulties for you there. I'm working hard to help us understand what's unfolded here and uh, we're just going to uh, tackle this one sermon at a time uh, to get through this. And I guess this is where we're going to become, you know, uh, like the exegetical special forces. We'll leave no verse behind. We're just going to cover every one of the details. So, I'm thinking through this, the law and the importance of the law, I just reminded that I think every genuine believer delights in the riches of the law. Like the psalmist saying, I love your precepts. They are my delight. There is that sense for us that we delight in righteousness. We delight in what God has said. But we also understand that us, those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have have, uh, tasted of the kindness of God, have been regenerated, We've called out in faith upon God and if now walking in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a different relationship to the law than we did before Christ. We are different. Not just again back in Romans 7 1. Just a kind of obvious statement, but we don't quite catch the implication of it. At the end of verse 1, he says, the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives it means the law rules over one when one is alive notice what changes in Paul's argument he goes on, he illustrates it in verse 2 and 3 he talks about that principle as long as somebody's alive, they're under the law just like a married woman is under the law while her husband is alive but as soon as her husband dies she is free from the law the law governs the living And that's why he then reminds us, verse 4, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. We who are in Christ have died to the law. Now notice this, what changed? We did. The law didn't change. The law wasn't removed. The law wasn't turned on its head. We were at salvation. We were changed. We who were dead were made alive. We who were uh, in the old man have been given a new man. We changed. We died to the law. Law has a permanence. Law has a purpose. Law even has a particular power. The law continues on. And we find ourselves, and I understand why, we find ourselves in this struggle. We're new creatures in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. The old things have passed away, behold, new things are come. And yet we're living every day in the Romans 12, 1 and 2 idea. When Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We live in a continual work of being renewed. Putting off the old man. Again, that old man, which is under the law because it is rebellious and it is uh, under the, the <clears throat> condemnation of the law, we, we live putting off that old man and putting on the new man. We live being renewed. And when we're living in this new man, we're living free. We're living in freeness of life. But sometimes we drift back into that old man. The old man's thinking. The old man's practices, the old man's desires, the old man's idols, the old man's pursuits. We live in the, at times in the old man and in that we are back under the law. The law is revealing sin. The law is exposing us. The law itself doesn't change. We change. The law remains perfect. In fact, the law has a purpose. That's Paul's whole argument here in chapter 7. In fact, there are three things that paul is defending first of all and this is just a high level outline of all of chapter 7 in chapter 7 verses 1 through 6 paul defends the rule of the law and then in verses 7 through 12 he defends the virtue of the law and then in verses 13 through 25 he reveals the use of the law in the hearts of rebellious man. That's how Paul works to unfold this chapter, and he remember that in verse one, he gives us who his audience is. He tells us he is speaking to those who know the law. He's speaking to the Jews, the ones who had received the law. He is speaking to them, and he is going to convince them of a proper understanding of the law. The law has a good work and it has a permanence to it. It isn't taken out of the way, it remains steady, it remains certain. Jesus said that. Just listen to these verses Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. Jesus said this Do not think I come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. You think I came to abrogate it. You think I came to remove it out of the way. You think I came to to destroy it. If that's what you're hearing, you're wrong. I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. Matthew 5.18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law. Notice, until all is accomplished. The law had a particular purpose, a particular work, and that work is going to be accomplished and, it, and, and it's going to be accomplished until heaven and earth pass away. It's going to do its work. What kind of work does the law of God do? Paul's been unfolding that in Romans. Turn over to chapter 3. He tells us at least a couple of things in Romans chapter 3, 19 and 20. Two things that the law does here. The law establishes guilt and the law reveals sin we see that here in 19 and 20 now we know that whatever the law says this is romans 3:19, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Here is the establishing of guilt. The law comes and establishes guilt that all are accountable to God and they will have no nothing they could say. They will be silenced. Come before God... All mankind standing before him will stand before them and no one will be able to give an excuse for their actions. The law will shut their mouths. They'll make them silent. Verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Notice this phrase, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The two things the law does, it reveals sin and establishes guilt. It reveals sin. It reveals where one is guilty. And, it's, and it establishes guilt, which means no one can stand in the law. It will bring them low. It will re- reveal their guiltiness. There's one more aspect to it, though. Turn over to chapter 7. Chapter 7 and verse 10. There was a particular expectation fact, if you were to read through Deuteronomy, the giving of the law, Moses regularly said, if you keep my commandments, you will what? Live. you have life. God said that regularly, that, that man, if he kept his commandments, Israel, if they kept his commandments, they would live. They would have life. Notice verse 10 here. This commandment Notice, which was to result in life proved to be death to me. The commandments it was a way of righteousness, a path of righteousness. It was there to show us righteousness. It was a promise of life, but it fell short. Nobody, there is a weakness to the law. What is revealed in the law is really a weakness law doesn't give righteousness the law itself reveals what righteousness is the law reveals the path of righteousness the law itself reveals what sin is and the law even reveals god's just condemnation for those who who are rebellious to it But the law does not know how to respond to the one who falls short with anything other than judgment the law cannot absolve past transgressions. The law itself cannot make up for failure. The law demands a perfect adherence to it, a perfect standard. It is unrelenting in its standard. The law knows no mercy, no grace, no patience, patience, no excuses. The law is exacting in God's righteous demands, so that no one could look upon the law and find rescue all they can find is an awareness of their sin and an awareness that they are under condemnation this is a, again if that's that kind of master a master that has that kind of tyranny that kind of expectation that kind of rule if it knows no mercy no grace no help and shouldn't we just get rid of it? Shouldn't we just toss it out? What value would it have for us? Even especially those of us who believe in the gospel, what value is it? That is the very question that Paul is anticipating. As he's talking about the riches of grace, and he's talking about the work of the spirit, and he's showing the use the weakness of the law, and he's showing the corruption of the heart of man, The very natural question we would be asking ourselves is what is the purpose and the value of this law, the law of God? Well, that's what we want to answer. And again, we're not going to get to it in one week. It's going to take a few weeks to get through this to understand the depths and the riches of God's work. Because there's so much that's confusing. For example, what do we mean when we talk about law? I mean, we might have even different ideas here in this room. We could be referring to the Mosaic law. could be referring to all of the scripture. We could be referring just to the law of love, the law of Christ. What law are we talking about when we talk about law? And then how do we categorize those laws? We might, again, have differences in this room. I might take, for example, the uh, reformers' categorization of the law and divide the law into moral, civil, and ceremonial parts. And you might come along, you say, well, no, I take the more Jewish division of the law, I divide it into apodictic laws and casuistic laws. You say, what in the world are those terms? Apodictic laws, an apodictic law is a law of command. Every time, the Ten Commandments are apodictic laws, thou shalt not. And then casuistic casuistic laws are case laws. So if this occurred, and then there would be the response, You know, if your mule runs away on a Sabbath day, then here's how you were to respond. These are responding to different situations. These are casuistic laws. Well, which category? Even when we're talking about laws and categories, what are we talking about in regards to the work of the law? And then, of course, we're asking the question, well, what is the permanence of the law? Is the law just simply a construct for Israel, and we have some new law for the church? Is it completely different? So many questions that befuddle us, that confuse even a plain understanding of the text here. We carry those ideas into the text, and it clouds our judgment and assessment. It makes it difficult. I would say, and just so you know where my cards are as I am wrestling through this text. I believe that the law of God, particularly the moral law, but in any one of God's laws, are a reflection of his character. That God is the very basis for which all laws are given. God himself gives is the basis of the law, so that even given of the law, whether it be a moral law, a civil law, a ceremonial law, all have an aspect or reflection to him. If I can illustrate that for you. I'll il- illustrate it with Deuteronomy 22 and verse 8. It's the law of the parapet. It says this, When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring blood guilt on your house if anyone falls from it. It's Deuteronomy 22 verse 8 say what is that well that is first of all a classification of a civil law if you were building your house in israel and you had a flat roof and you would according to the customs go up on the roof in the cool of the evening and sit up there with your family you were under obligation to provide a wall around your roof so no one runs and falls off the end you were to protect them What's the, there's a timeless moral principle in that law. What is that timeless moral principle? Is the law of love. You protect your neighbor. You were under obligation. Israel was under obligation to protect their neighbor from being harmed on their property. And he had a civil law which demonstrated that. Gentile nations didn't care about such things, but God's people were going to be different. They are going to be separated. And they were going to demonstrate their their love for their neighbor by protecting their neighbor from being harmed. We do the same thing here today, the same principle. The law of love still operates today. If you had a tree in your yard, an oak tree and uh, one of those branches of that oak tree died and it was starting to rot and it got to a place where it could potentially fall at any moment and hurt somebody, you would be under obligation to protect your neighbor by taking down that branch. So as not to cause harm, that moral law, that moral continuity of law is protected. We protect our neighbor. We can look back at the Old Testament. We can see examples for us. And we can draw implications because of the moral continuity of the law. But we are not under the particular applications of the law. We know this. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. I'll show you this. Ephesians chapter 2. We're not under the particular applications of the law for the Jew. This would be the civil ceremonial aspects. How is that? Why do we know that? Well, Paul describes it here in the work of Christ. What was the law given for? The law was given not only to reveal the character of God, to bring out uh, uh, you know, justice or judgment upon the wicked and reveal their guilt, but it was also given to Israel to separate Israel from the rest of the nations. And it worked well. And Paul says that's what's taken out of the way here in, Re- in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. It says this, Therefore remember for formerly you the Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. He's saying, he's now talking to Jew and Gentile, and he's saying to the Gentile, before the work of Christ, you were alienated and separated. You were outside the covenant promises of God. You were on the outside. You had no hope in this world. Verse 13, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Well, Christ has now reconciled and brought us in. When we were on the outside, he's now brought us in. How did he do that? Verse four, or verse 14 and 15. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. What is that? He's giving a reference to the, the temple. He's saying that temple, the center of the Jewish worship here, he broke down this dividing wall uh, in just a inside into the Jewish worship there would be various sections that people could go into the priests could go into the inner and only the high priest can go into the inner holy of holy then you had the priests then you had the men then you had the outer courts of the women children and gentiles so you had these dividing walls of access into god And here he says, Christ came in and ripped down this dividing wall, how? Verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. What is that? Which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man. Christ has come and has accomplished and completed the very work and removed the the dividing wall where I believe, again, would be the civil and ceremonial aspects of the law. He has fulfilled it, and has now brought Jew and Gentile together. This was, again, Acts chapter 15, the first Jerusalem council. This is, again, what the church emphasized. You can go back and read the book of Galatians on this, that these, the work of Christ now has satisfied the requirements of God that he had given to his people in Israel. And now, through Christ, Jew and Gentile are reconciled together. He goes on to make the case they're even reconciled to God. So this is, then, big picture work of Christ and what he's accomplished. Back to Romans 7. If the law reveals sin, and the law is, uh, reveals judgment, and the law has been satisfied uh, in Christ, and he has now brought Jew and Gentile together, then what is the place of the law? And more than that, and Paul adds here in verses one through six, which we saw last week, particularly verse five, "If all the law does is stir up our passions and stir up our rebellion and cause us to act out sin and we give our members to sin, then the natural implication would be, the law's the problem. We've got to get rid of this thing. Get rid of it. Toss it out. Let it, we need to get away from it. And it would have been very easy for Paul just to say, I agree with you, let's move on. Jump right into chapter 8. But he doesn't. In fact, he asked the very question that I got an email this week on. Why would we keep the law if the law just stirs up passion? I said, I'm glad you asked that question, for it tells me that I I got the text right, and it asks the very question that Paul asks in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is there a problem with the law? Absolutely not. So now we move into the second argument of Paul from verse 7 through 12, and it is this. Paul is going to defend the virtue of the law. What is the place of the law? What is... Why the virtue? And this is where we're going to slow down. Because we've been going way too fast. I covered six verses last week. The elders rebuked me. So now we're going to slow down. And no, they didn't, but they should have. We're going to look at verses 7 through 12. And there are five points, five virtues that Paul unfolds here about the law. I'll give them to you, and then over the next weeks we'll cover them. In verse 7, we see that the law reveals sin, And in verse 8, we see that the law is innocent of evil. And in verse 9, we see that the law shows sin's rule. And in verse 10 and 11, we see that the law establishes guilt. And then in verse 12, we see that the law is holy. These are the virtues of the law. I mean, as Paul unfolds these virtues... These are the very virtues that the Jew would be appreciating. Yes, the law is, is a revealer of sin. And yes, the law exposes unrighteousness when it's there. And yeah, it's not the problem with the law. It's the law itself is innocent. I mean, I can, we know this. Once again, confession time. When I drive up Jacaranda and the scoreboard goes off, and my, my number is higher than the 30 there, so I got the new high number. It's not the law that's the problem, it's me. The law is certain. The law is clear. But I, in my own transgression, push past. The law is innocent. I don't like the law. I wish that it was opposite. I wish that little scoreboard was actually the new standard But that is not the way the law works. It's innocent. And the law shows how sin rules in the heart. And the law shows how rebellion is stirred up within us. And the law even then establishes guilt. Because the law is holy, as Paul says in verse 12. the 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 law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There is a virtue to the law. And this is what we need to understand. We need to understand the virtuous law. Once we understand the virtuous law, the very next question would be, then, how do I use it? And that's what he answers in verses 13 through verse 25. And he answers how they use it unlawfully or how we use it improperly. Particularly how the, the Jew who didn't believe in the gospel, how they were using it and how it kept them falling short. We'll cover that later. For now, what we're just looking at is the virtue of the law, what our perspective ought to be when we come to the law to understand its work. And remember, when it comes to the dynamics of the law, what changes is not the law, what changes is us. We're born again, we have a new nature, we begin to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We begin to walk in newness of life. We begin to yield to the Spirit. We sanctify our hearts and minds with the truth. We put off that old man and put on the new man. The law remains steady. The law remains certain. The law remains exacting. And the law continues to do its work. And the first work, the first virtue is this. The law reveals sin. That's what he says there in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? And of course, again, may it never be. There's no way. It's not sin. Problem isn't with the law. Why? Well, here's the first truth. It says, on the contrary, I would not have come to no sin except through the law. And then he adds this uh, statement there in verse 7. Um, For I would not have known about covening if the law, and then this phrase, had not said, you shall not covet. First aspect and virtue of the law is that the law reveals what was previously hidden. The law brings to light what was in the darkness. Now This is interesting to ponder, because even in Paul's unfolding of the argument here, you remember back in chapter 2 what he said about the work of the law written in the heart. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, he made this statement. It says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them. What he says there is that God in his general revelation has put in man an awareness of the law that is written on their heart. And it is evident when they instinctively do what is right. They know it. This is how you can have a Unbeliever who has no faith in Christ and yet do good things because they have the law in their heart and they instinctively do it. Turn over to chapter 1 of Romans, look at 18 through 20, further into this description of general revelation says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But that which is known about God, or because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Notice what he is saying there, that God's righteous judgment is evident to all because he has put within man an awareness An awareness that there's a God. An awareness, of course, that they have to suppress an unrighteousness, verse 18. And then he explains it in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, and here's the universality of the general revelation, so that all are without excuse. They are without excuse because God has made it known through general revelation. Well, listen, general revelation is enough to condemn, but it's not enough to deliver. Universal because all can see, all can look up, all can understand. It is universal because God has put the law on everyone's heart. They all have access to this, but it can be suppressed, it can be ignored. And it won't lead to righteousness. It only leads to condemnation. So we're stuck. But in comes the grace of God. Who sends his prophets and his apostles. To come ministering the word of God. So that God who is in heaven comes and sends his messengers to communicate his very word to his people. So that we can understand the way of god the law of god god inspired men and moved them to communicate well he inspired he moved men to write the inspired word he moved them along delivered them providentially directing them in circumstances shaped them shaped their personhood their their Education, their training, their circumstances—he moved them along to which they then wrote the very word of God, the inspired Scripture. That's why we say of the Scripture, the special revelation. We believe in a verbal plenary inspiration. That is inspired means source is breathed out from God. It is verbal. That is that is the words are inspired. It is plenary all the words are inspired. All the words inspired by God delivered to us, they are inerrant and infallible. Inerrant meaning a God who cannot lie has spoken and given his word and it's without error in the original autograph. Then it's infallible. It's not going to mislead us. It's going to be reliable. It is this sure word communicated to us. And in particular... We have in our focus is the law, the law given to us from Moses. Think about the value of that, the value of Moses giving the Word of God, the written Word of God, particularly. It wasn't just the oral listening to God speak, and then Moses coming down and giving oral instruction. He actually delivered the very word of God. There was something significant about Moses walking up onto Sinai, receiving from God the tablets of stone, walking down with the ten words, the ten commandments on stone. What was the value of that? Was this four values, actually, four reasons why the written word is valuable to us? The first is this, it removes all ambiguity. It removes all ambiguity. If the law is written on our heart, the ambiguity is, well, what particularly is written on our hearts? Now that we have the law from Moses, the, the written scriptures, we have the ambiguity removed. We know exactly what was said. We know it clearly. It's funny, I think about this, and this idea of ambiguity. Because my kids trap me in this all the time when I'm speaking to them. And they'll come up to me and like, Dad, can we go to the store for ice cream? And I will say, maybe we can do that. In their mind, that's a definite yes. In my mind, that is a potential Maybe. But now in oral communication, we're in this dialogue here. Dad, you promised this thing. Well, where is it written down? Did I send you an email? Did I record an edict for you that I have it in Word? Well, no, I heard this. Now we're in a measure of ambiguity because what you interpret my meaning to be would be different than what was actually stated. When you write it down, the ambiguity of the message is removed. So God... Writing, sending his apostles and prophets, sending his messengers to communicate his very word, to write it out, the first benefit for us is ambiguity is removed. We know exactly the will of God and the message of God because it is recorded in stone. But second of all, the value of the written word is that it codifies the message. It is certain. So if I do, then send an email to my son. Son, today I am taking you to ice cream. He knows at that moment that that is a law. That is certain. He knows that that is a promise that is written out, that the words are there. It's codified. The message doesn't change. And this, again, is the distinction between the law written on our hearts when we naturally do what is right, we reveal the law written on our hearts versus the revealed written law is codified. We know certainty what God wants. Listen, that's great value to us, you know, especially uh, when you just think about communication and the way as our memories fail us. I mean, I think about the many times my wife says to I me, mean, I told you that. I'm pretty sure you didn't tell me that. I, I, really, I, I, I think I remember that. No, I told you. Oral communication, relying on our memories, are inherently faulty, but the written law, written communication codifies the message you know for certain. This is why we look back to the, found, to the writings of the founding fathers, and we can see their writings and their signatures, and we know this was their intention. Third value, the written law, why it was a grace to us, As it protects the message. It preserves it. That's why even a week later, my son can bring back the email and say, I have the email. This is the very proof that you made the commitment and you promised that this was going to take place. There was a commitment that is protected, a message that is protected. When we start talking and I, and I give a, a message orally and you hear it, the message gets changed when it's passed on from person to person. If I had said orally, come home for dinner at 6 p.m. It might finally get translated to my, one of my kids as, we're going to eat dinner after dark or before dark. What was exacting and clear becomes unclear as it's passed orally from person to person. And so the value of having it written down is the message is protected. And fourthly, the value of a message written down is it establishes objectivity. It is outside of my own interpretation, your interpretation. It's intended the author writing it down gives objectively his meaning. He gives a sure word in here. With the giving of the law from Moses, we have from God a certain and reliable and dependable word that is not open to subjectivity, but it is objective. Ambiguity is removed, and the solidity of the message is confirmed. The the message is protected in time, carried on. So what we have today is what was then, and it is objective, not related to human experience or understanding. This is the grace of the law, is the grace of God to give the Ten Commandments, the grace of God to reveal His Word, to speak to us, because we know for certain what He wants. That's the first aspect of verse 7 here, when he says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law unless there was a clear and objective certain word. I wouldn't even have known sin. But the second aspect of it is this. Because there is a clear and certain word, I now see as sin what I previously thought wasn't sin. That's what he says, verse 7 there. I would not have known about coveting if the law had not sinned. Notice he he doesn't say there, uh, you know, coveting didn't exist. He said, I wouldn't have known that's what it was. If the law had not said, you shall not covet it's through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's through the law that comes the revealing of ungodliness. It's through the law that sin, which was always operating, now becomes manifest and made known. This is the first virtue of the law. It is an act of God's grace to reveal himself to us and it reveals what is going on in us. Reveals our Simple condition it reveals how we are again have fallen short. It reveals again man's own rebellion because this is the work of the law, one of the first virtues of the law. This is what it does perfectly. It reveals righteousness and exposes unrighteousness. Every time, again, you open it up and you read it, you're seeing exactly what righteousness is and you understand what unrighteousness is. Every time the law is spoken, the law is revealed, it's doing its work. Now what's terrifying for us is this. If that is the exacting work of the law is to reveal sin, sometimes that light shines on us and reveals in us a way that is contrary to God's design. Now the question is, what do we do with that? What do we, some of the answers have been, well, just get rid of the law and just toss it out. And, and uh, so you're, you're fine in the darkness. And say, well, why would I go backwards? If it was a grace of God to give the law to reveal, why would I toss this out? The law was given. And now here's where I have said to You, starting last week, and I will continue to say through this whole series here, the Christian lives in a paradox. On one hand, we are free from the law. We are free from the law, from its judgments. We no longer fear judgment because Christ has borne our judgment he has borne our transgressions. He has taken upon himself the, the, our transgressions, our guilt, and he has bore the wrath of God for that. So we no longer fear the law as a source of judgment. And the second thing, we no longer use the law as a source of righteousness. Our righteousness comes from Christ. We're not turning to the law to gain righteousness, for the law can't provide righteousness. But we're free to keep the law. We are free in Christ to keep the law, free to walk in the Spirit and live in newness of life, free to walk in love. Let me show you this. I turn over to Galatians chapter 5. I just want to show you one truth here. The grace of God has set us free. Notice this, Galatians 5, Paul talking about justification, talking about the works of the law, and he's defending our our justification in in Christ. And then he makes this statement in verse 14. He says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole keeping of the law is, is summed up in love. Love your neighbor. Love God. You want to be free from the law? Walk in love. As you walk in love, you are free from the law. You don't have to worry about the law's exposing sin. You don't have to worry about the law's condemnation. You don't have to worry about anything from the law because you walked in love and you kept it all. Back, Christian. I had one more to it. When you and I walk in the spirit, walk in newness of life, walk in the redeemed man. When you and I put on Romans 13:14, we put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. When you and I uh, yield to the Spirit of God and being led by the Spirit of God, we one keep the whole law, and we are free from the burdens fact, listen to these verses, when we do that, we don't sin. One more verse down, look at verse 16 of Galatians 5, I have you in Galatians 5 still, right? So 516, notice what he says there, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you probably won't carry out the desires of the flesh. Is that what it says? No, it doesn't say that. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. What do I know immediately if I engage in fleshly activity? I know immediately I wasn't yielding to the Spirit. Immediately. I gave in to the old man. I walked in uh, my old practices. I didn't yield to the Spirit because if I had been yielding to the Spirit and walking in the Spirit, I will not carry out the desires of the flesh. The new man walks in righteousness and holiness. So I can say this, the redeemed child of God walks in righteousness. Now here's the phrase that's going to cause you to run out of here. And does not sin. And you're like, Pastor, do you even know who you're talking to? And you better look in the mirror yourself first. And I'll just remind you of a couple of verses and remind myself. Remember 1 John 3, verse 4? I'm going to sort of read it as the original translation, not the New American. The um, New American tries to, to iron it out for us, but it says this. Everyone who sins, present tense verb, that is presently and persistently, so duration and present tense. Everyone who sins also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Verse 8, the one who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil verse 9 of 1 John 3, no one who is born of God sins because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, these are some hard verses to understand and wrestle through. But what John is arguing and reminding us here is the believer walks in newness of life. The believer doesn't walk in the old life. The believer walks in newness of life. The believer doesn't practice sin. The believer practices righteousness. The believer isn't of the devil. The believer is of God. You see, here's the work of the law for us. The work of the law is there to show us when we're walking more like the devil than like God. How does the law work for us today? It tells us, it reveals to us when we're no longer walking in the Spirit, when we're no longer walking according to the grace of God, when we are no longer walking in newness of life. Turn back to Romans chapter 7. will show you here, Christian. Chapter 6 tells us, we have been set free from sin. It tells us in verse 1, if we died to sin, shall we still live in, to, in it? Verse 2, do you not know that you've been baptized into Christ Jesus? You've been baptized into his death? Why? So at the verse 4, because we've been united to Christ so that at the end of verse 4, we too might walk in newness of life. For verse 7, for he who has died is freed from sin. We have been set free from slavery to sin. We are alive in Christ. We have been joined to him. Verse 8, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. So it's Christ living in us and through us. We're now living for Christ and the glory of Christ. We are alive to God. Verse 11, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. This is how we live now. We live in newness of life. We live in, in this new life that walks in righteousness, that even is a slave to righteousness. That's what we saw from verses 15 through 23. We're now slaves of righteousness. Verse eighteen seven says that. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. We're free to walk in righteousness, free to live in it. But here's the deal. While we have been born again, while we are alive They're the remaining effects of the old man, the remaining ideologies that have to be put off, the remaining practices. And whenever we give in to those old lies, those old practices, here comes the law to reveal to us that we have fallen short. Because the law does its work. The law reveals unrighteousness. The law calls it out. And so the law has a good virtue, a good purpose. It always reveals the standard of righteousness, and it exposes within us when we are no longer walking in the new man. Because if we were walking in the new man, we'd be walking in love, and we'd be walking by the Spirit, and we would be fulfilling the whole law. When we we're walking in the old man, and the law exposes it, exposes our evil. what can we say is this then we understand the battle against sin but it's not a battle with the law as if the law needs to be changed the law isn't changed we need to be changed our hearts need to be changed our lives need to be changed our minds need to be changed our inner and outer man needs to be changed and brought into conformity to god And while we're in this process now being worked out, we anticipate glory when it will all be completed, when the inner and outer man will be radically transformed and will have full newness of life. In the meantime, we live in awareness that this law is holy, just, and good. And when it warns us that we are drifting into the old man, we remember and praise God for the law for revealing sin. But here's the problem. And we're going to see this when we get through the rest of Romans. The temptation for you and for me is this. I messed up. I'll fix it. Uh, Yeah, okay, I know what the law says, so I'll just go do it now. I'm going to to go do this law, and I'm going to get back on the right track, and I'll demonstrate to God I'm on the right track, and everything's right. And you're going to find out. You're going to live right back in verse 5 there. That law is only going to stir up rebellion within. It's going to stir up the passions and corruption, and you're going to fall short. In fact, you're going to find yourself in verses 14 through 25 of chapter 7 incapable of doing right because the law cannot make you right. The law can only reveal what is right. You say, well, what's going to make me right? The grace of God, chapter 6, in the Spirit of God, chapter 7. And we will cover that in the weeks to come. But For now, quickly, the response. You fall short, you sin, here's what you need to do. One, praise God that there's grace in Jesus Christ. If you fall short, our Christian response to sin is that we praise God for the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. And secondly, we praise God... And we appreciate his righteous standard. We appreciate righteousness. We delight in it. We desire righteousness and we rejoice in it. And then thirdly, seek to walk in newness of life. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh. Remember, praise God for his grace. Delight in his righteousness as the new man does. And then put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Walk by the Spirit walk in his grace, and we'll be transformed. And we're going to see more of this struggle and this battle. So if it doesn't make sense yet, keep coming back, and we're going to work through this. But the temptation today where someone is saying, well, I just got to get rid of the law, the laws is the problem, that is the worst response because the law was a grace to expose unrighteousness. What should be is I need more. I need to turn back to what I have embraced in the Lord Jesus Christ and put it on. And we'll see that in the weeks to come. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the riches of your word here and your truth. Indeed, our hearts and minds need a lot of sanctifying, a lot of transforming work. We appreciate the work of the law, its virtues, That it reveals sin within us. And indeed, we have tested the law in every way, and it proves itself virtuous. Sometimes we have sinned externally, evidently to all, and sometimes we've hidden it in our heart. And in every case, your law has been clear and exacting in its work. And so, indeed, it is wholly just and true. Indeed, its message confirms what is right. So we delight in the law because we delight in righteousness. But we do not trust in the law. We trust in the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. So we ask, Father, as we are in the midst of this battle and struggle, may we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and put him on. May we yield to your spirits. May we sanctify our hearts and minds with your truth and then to see the power of your grace alive within us. Thank you for this study. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.